to the book of Philippians. Book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning. We'll read that in a moment. In his book, Good to Great, uh, Jim Collins identifies traits and qualities that are shared by, by successful top CEOs, ones that just were very clearly successful in what they had accomplished. And in all their studies, they, they narrowed down two distinct traits that were in all of these top CEOs. Um, one of them, they found that, that men and women had a very focused and driven professional will. There was this tenacious will that was professional in them. And secondly, a second trait of these top leaders, along with this, this determined will, was personal humility. Uh, a quote from uh, the, the Good to Great website specifies this. They said, they're, they're incredibly ambitious, but their ambition is first and foremost for the cause for the organization and its purpose, not themselves. They, they had something else in view other than themselves. In the book, Collins writes, the good to great leaders never wanted to become larger than life heroes. They never aspired to be put on a pedestal or become unreachable icons. They were seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. There was uh, questions and surveys asked of those who worked with these particular leaders, and they would describe them using various words like this. They continually use words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, self-effacing, understated, did not believe their own clippings, and so forth. Humble, humility, even, even in all the pride that, that can manifest in successful ventures, it's very interesting that humility stood at, as a key and core quality to achieving greatness. And I think this is true because this is, this is a, a kingdom principle that, that our text, as we're going to dig into it this morning, draws attention not just to, to humility as an example, but to the foremost example of it of all, Christ himself the greatest example. Before that, I just want to recap briefly where we were last week because it flows into where we're going to be this morning. We looked at verses 1 through 4 and into 5, and we, we looked at the, this call of the Philippians and for all Christians to live as a Christian community, as a church, united in fellowship, living lives of humility orientated around Jesus himself. And this commands, if your Bibles are open, it, it stems back to a verse in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul charges them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means is he, he's, he's saying you are citizens of a kingdom, a greater kingdom, and it is shaped by Jesus. And so all your manner of life, all your doing, all your actions, all your living should be gospel-shaped. It should, it should befit the gospel the, the Christ that you are in, gospel-shaped living side by side with brothers and sisters with a call to suffer with them. And so, in the end, because it's about Jesus and we're called into community, it's a not about us. It's about Jesus and it's about others. And we were reminded last week that there has to be a why in that, and that why is a person. It is Jesus. 
The gospel addresses our default mode, which is our sinful hearts to be self-centered. Uh, it, it, it curves and bends in on ourself and for ourself. Uh, we become the, the me monsters and all. Self-glory, self-praise, my gain, my pride, and the gospel, as we look to Christ, bends us outward towards Him and towards others. And so our section this morning is a continuation of what He has been saying and, been, and what is going to be said throughout the rest of the letter. What's interesting, though, is Paul, when he writes verses 1 through 4, he, he, could, have, he could have just stopped there. He shows them, he shows them that there is an encouragement because they are in Christ. He tells them that there's the Father's love which they have. He says that they are united in the Spirit and they can be together in Christ. But, but it's almost as, as if he begins to talk more and more about what they have and what he has in Christ. And he can't help but break out into to, to worship as he talks about Jesus, as he considers who Jesus is. Some have observed that this this section that we're going to look at this morning, because it, it's right at the center of Philippians, it's like, it's like this, this mountaintop that he finds himself, this crescendo that is anchoring all that Paul commands and all that Paul hopes for in his foundation for everything else. So, so how will the Philippians, how will they lose sight of themselves? How will they stay faithful and, and on course of, in their humility, not in self-loathing or apathy, doing nothing but a, but a motivating power, a, a life-shaping power, a humbling power, a grace that they need in order to obey and to be humble and to love well. He wants them to behold Jesus. He wants them to worship Christ. And this text does those very things. So let us read this morning, and I'm going to back up just for context, read us through verses 1 to 11, and then we're going to pray. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, your word here this morning is here for us to see you, to, to know you, 
to worship you, to behold you. And Lord, we, in order for us to, to behold you, we need your spirit to open our hearts and our eyes. And so I ask you, Lord, come, allow your spirit to now move among us so that we, we could be enthralled by Jesus today, that our hearts could be captured and our affections rise for Jesus today. Lord, use these words this morning to do that. Amen. Amen. Now, most scholars agree, given the, the poetic style and the language of this, this section of verses, that this was a hymn, a hymn that maybe the early church sang. It's oftentimes referred to as the Christ hymn, given its, its cadence and its short lines. It tells a story of Christ, eternity past, and Christ, eternity future. It's broken up in, in several ways uh, that scholars, as they've looked at it, but most basically is seen in two sections or two parts. The first of Christ, his descent, his humility, and the second, his exaltation, his, glory, his glorifying um, position in heaven. Now, we could, we could spend weeks just working through each of these stanzas because there is so much in each and every one of them. Paul want, wants, wanted that church to, their hearts to be lifted up to worship, and I, 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 I think that's what God wants our hearts to be done today, to, to worship Jesus. We could say to sing and worship. I, my hope is that this morning, Philippians 2 helps us worship Jesus. It's beautiful. You, you feel the progress in this section of verses. Uh, it builds with like a logic, a cascading. It fills our minds and our hearts with who Jesus is. Now, I want to look at verse 5 for a moment. Last week we talked about Christian humility, and we're going to look at that even more today. A call to Christ-like humility, a Christ-empowered humility. And we see in verse 5 the setup, this command from Paul, which leads into this hymn. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or literally we, literally, we could read this, think this among yourselves, which also is in Christ Jesus. Maybe you have a footnote in your Bible with that, that explanation. This is a bridging text. It points back to what Paul had been saying about having their mind, what kind of mind that they should have among themselves, and then points ahead and expands on it, the sort of mind, the attitude that is in Christ that they should be shaped by. He's saying your mind, your attitude, your posture of heart, your living should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, because this is yours. You are in Christ. This is yours, and Christ sets us an example of what that should look like. And so the question, so in their pursuit of humility, what kind of humility is to be in their community? What kind of attitude, what kind of actions, what kind of thoughts should they have? What will set their hearts right? What will set our hearts right in true humility and loving obedience to God? 
as his people. It will be worship of God in Christ. So let's, let's work through this hymn in its two parts. The first part, Christ's humility. Here, Paul begins with the, the pre-incarnate Christ. He says this, though he who was in the form of God, Jesus, who was invisible spirit, his form was his glory and majesty as God. We see this captured in Hebrews 1.3. It tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus' being is the radiance of God's glory. John Calvin writes, the form of God means here his majesty. For as man is known by the appearance of his form, as we look at a man, we know that he is man. So for Jesus, so the majesty of, God, of Jesus, which shines forth in God, is his figure. So God, Jesus, who is God, eternally existing, his glory and his majesty, all that he is, the nature of God was in his being. But, verse 6, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, this could be read, even in the fact that he was in the form of God, he did not use it as a thing to be held on to his advantage. Jesus, who, because, though he was in the nature of God, did not use all of his majesty and his glory and his power, a thing to exploit for his own gain, but instead uses it to serve others for their gain. Just pause and think about that for a moment. Jesus, the Son of God, creator of the world, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, the one who spoke the world into existence, stars by name, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, he would yield this so others could experience him. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What does this what does empty himself mean? At, at no point did Jesus stop being God, or there was any loss of his full divine nature or him as part of the Godhead. Again, John Calvin writes, he kept it concealed for a time. He laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Meaning, he emptied himself, he cloaked his glory in such a way by doing two things. Look at, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus came in the flesh, in the incarnation that we just thought at length about through the Advent season coming down, condescending, being born as a man, as a human. But he came not just as a man in general, but as a servant man. Notice our words form. The form of God was exchanged for the form of a servant. He, he could have been born a prince. He, he could have been born a rich landowner or a politician or something great in the eyes of men, but he came as a nobody. As a, as a slave, as a, a bond servant is what that word means. I've mentioned in time that I, I lived in England growing up and when I was young. And I, 
I'd sort of imagine myself back in England this week, maybe being there in the town of Newmarket. And there in England right now, the country's awaiting the coronation of its new king, King Charles III. Now, I'm not sure where you land with the, uh, the royal family at this point, kind of hot in the Harry team or William team. I'm not sure where you're, guard your heart wherever you are this morning as I talk about this. But I had the thought of King Charles, soon to be, taking a taxi from the palace, coming to my little house in Newmarket, getting dropped off and coming to my home and knocking on the door and just simply asking, is there any way that I can serve you, Nate, and your family? And he, I invite him in and, and King Charles comes in and he begins, to, he begins to clean my toilets and vacuum my carpets and my wife would love folding all the laundry. And he continues to do this all day. What, what can I do, he says, to, to, to serve you, to make your life with joy? How can I bring gain to you and your home? I'm here to serve you. And, and I imagine it's not just as simply like a, an undercover boss episode where he comes in and he spends maybe one eight-hour shift with his, with his coworkers or employees and then he doesn't do anymore. But no, imagining him doing that every day for his entire life using all of his wealth, all of his wisdom, all of his power, whatever, to promote my good and my joy. The contrast here in Philippians is, is the status of the creator of the universe. The greater the position forfeited, the greater the measure of glory in the serving. Jesus, the one, God himself, eternal creator full of majesty and glory, who, who set the course of all the billions of stars and knows them by name, and then yet also knows my name and your name, is the one that condescends and comes to our door to serve us. You see, the greater the position forfeited, the greater the measure of the glory in serving. And he came down. And he uses power in a specific way to serve being found in human form, he humbled himself, his humility, in a specific way by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see how our, our hymn just goes lower and lower? Jesus, down, the, 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 the down, down, down nature of our Savior, his radical humility in obe obeying the Father, even to the point of death. And not simply just death, death on a cross. Suffering on the behalf of others. As Mark tells us, to give up his life as a ransom for many. We can see here in this first section of our hymn, this, I, the prophet Isaiah speaking of the suffering servant who came down who was brought low. Gordon Fee says, Jesus' obedience took him to the nth degree, to death itself. He climbed down the ladder to the lowest rung in humble service, which is the antithesis of what we do in our life. We, we climb up, we clamor up to our personal greatness, our name, our glory, our achievements, and Jesus, our ultimate picture of humility, empties himself 
He let goes of his prerogatives and his rights, a self-emptying service to go and embrace a cross, a cross by that Roman law only allowed for the worst and the most vile. Roman citizens would not even be crucified. And so Jesus did not just simply take the place of a despicable, lowly servant. He, he embraced a cross. Imagine the Philippian believers hearing this as they were busy about their self-exalting, disunity, proud selfishness, one-upping one another, how they should have been awakened as they heard the significance afresh of what Jesus has done. And they would hear what Paul just said, humility, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus did. He uses divine status as God, as deity, not to avoid something or people, but to exercise the character, display the glory of God as a servant for the good and the salvation and the joy of others. This, this is an unparalleled example of what humility is. If someone does something great, we, we are mesmerized by that depending upon how great they are. If someone is great and they do something humble, that's amazing. If someone is lowly and does something lowly, we're not such amazed. But he is the one in the form of God who emptied himself, the Son of God, the royal king of glory and majesty, and he took on human form to become a servant by placing himself on a cross. Not for righteous people, not for perfect people, but those who didn't want him for sinners and rebels. And, and this is where we are awakened to humility. We realize our state before a holy and glorious God and what we truly need. At the cross, we all find our place of humility. What is our common denominator? We are all human, but we are all sinners in need of a Savior. It's easy for us to look great as we compare ourselves to ourselves, but when we look up and we look to God, we realize who He is and who we are not, and we're humbled. We're humbled. We're humbled because we, we don't stand before Him. We cannot stand before Him. So we look at the cross and we are humbled. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. There is one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. So that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. When I survey the wonderful, wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God and the cross can save me, I'm humble to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. So we don't compare ourselves with ourselves. We don't compare ourselves with other people. Jay-Z or Joe Biden or Tom Brady, whatever goats you want to consider. We, we look at Jesus. We consider Jesus and we consider the cross. 
This hymn helps us contemplate the cross. This hymn helps us contemplate what Jesus has done, and it should have a humbling effect. So when you contemplate the cross, as you contemplate the cross this morning, what, what is that doing for you today? What should humble us? It should do a lot more. It does a lot more. It reminds us that we can be saved. It displays God's radical love and mercy, but it should, it should humble us. For Christ, as our ultimate example, he shows us, he shows us this, this kingdom principle that we began with in our talk this mor- sermon this morning, this, this upside down of the kingdom. To be low is to be lifted up. To come as a child is how we should come, not with our prestige. Servants of all are the greatest of all. And Jesus is the greatest example of humility because he is truly servant of all. Therefore, he is greatest of all. So as we move through our hymn, we, we see the down, 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 and it strikes this chord to contemplate, and then we, we feel the rise now shift in verse 9. Because our Savior has come down, He deserves to be exalted. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted Him. Or therefore, for this reason, because of this, because what? Because of the obedient humility of the Son. His his down, down unto death as he embraced the cross. It was by death on the cross that salvation would come to his people. It would be by the cross that he would defeat sin and its penalty and power. It would be through the cross that there would be a decisive blow and defeat of Satan and his power. And therefore, God's approval of the Son's full and complete and saving work has been accomplished. And he sees out of the humble sacrifice of his Son, and his resurrection, he is exalted. He's affirmed as Lord and King, victorious. See, Jesus is fulfilling his words from Matthew 23. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. See, Jesus went to the very bottom, the lowest to the cross, and therefore its implications of wrath and the sin of the world and brokenness and evil and darkness. He went to the lowest place, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place. It was not Jesus who exalted himself, it was God the Father exalting him. Through the entire New Testament, this word here, exalted, is the only place that we see this word. It literally means super exalted. Therefore, God super exalted, hyper exalted his son. Incomparable, unmatched in worth and glory is the son. And it's not that he didn't have it before. It's that this has been now made known. And because it's been made known, because he is highly exalted, it says that God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now remember our believers here in Philippi, this this Roman colony, many Rome, where, where Caesar was 
titled Lord, where Augustus Caesar had divine name and was the only one to be worshipped and bowed to in a culture with a pantheon of gods to be worshipped. We hear this resounding one name that is above all names. One name that is to be above all names. One divine name that deserves worship. One divine name that deserves to be confessed as Lord and ruler and king. One knee that should, to one person, knees should be bowed to in heaven, earth, and under it. So meaning every realm, physically and spiritually, above, below, his rule and his reign over it all. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, is Lord. This word here, Lord, is so important. The hymn here in Philippians actually quotes from the prophet Isaiah 45. And I'm going to read a section of that. We'll find this verse in context. This is what it reads. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it, and, it did not, and it, he did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. You notice the, the capitalization of the word Lord here in this Old Testament. is It's referencing divine name of God, Yahweh, for the people of Israel. Our hymn attributes this name, Lord, to Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. Nothing else is Lord except Jesus. He is the one who created. He is the one who sustains. He is the one who formed and made the inhabitation of all the world. He is the Lord and there is no other. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And in Him alone is deliverance and strength. Echo Psalm 95, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. And the hymn ends in Jesus' coming down, humble cross bearing in His exaltation in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. See, the hymn began with eternity past and it casts our gaze towards the eternity future when all creation, all creation will respond in worship to Him. His glory is concealed no longer and all creation sees and worship. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. To Him alone be glory forever. Amen. That's where it is going. That's where it ends. So, what is the cure 
for our pride? What is the cure for our self-centeredness, our lack of love, our inability to get out of ourself to see others rightly? It is worship of Christ Jesus. This is the path Paul brings us to. This is where God brings us to, to embrace his gracious gospel by seeing Jesus Christ, what he did in his cross and where he is in his exaltation as Lord. We see him and what he has done for us in his humble sacrifice, and we worship. And we see him exalted as King and Lord, and we respond in loving obedience, him as Lord, us loving him as King. Worship sets us right when we see God as he is and who we are rightly. Jonathan Edwards writes, He that has a right sense and estimate of himself in comparison with God will be likely to have his eye open to see himself aright in all respects. The Philippians needed help to get their eyes open to see themselves in right respect so that they could love others and obey Jesus rightly. Not by comparison to others, but by looking up, looking up to our Savior, the one who condescended to love and to save and to serve and who is now highly exalted. This opens our eyes, opens our hearts as we should. So, are you wrestling with thinking of too highly of yourself? Worship Jesus. Look to Jesus. Are you struggling, feeling motivated to serve others? Study Jesus. Consider what he has done and who he is and worship. Our pride can work in two directions when we're caught with what we've done or what we haven't done. We can compare ourselves to others and say we are better than others. Or pride can look like I am worse than everyone else. You think I am so awful. No one is as awful as me. It can be a form of pride in that as well. But when we look at this hymn and we look at what Jesus did to achieve salvation, we see that it is sufficient for all sins. And it obliterates our pride that would find itself we're above others or we think we're too bad. Jesus himself did this. Those who are in Christ, who walk in Christ, his likeness is developed in us as we have his mind shaped in us as we look to him and worship him. As Corinthians would say, when we behold Christ in the gospel, we are transformed one degree of glory to another. So what kind of mind do we need? What does this humility look like? Christ-like self-emptying humility towards others. How do we get that? By looking to Jesus and beholding him. And as we do, it fills our heart with faith and trust for a life of obedience and worship to Jesus. True worship of Christ will produce in his people his humility and his likeness. This is the theology the Philippian church needed, and this is what we need. This is, this is the hymn we need. This is our song. And as we do, our hearts are laid hold of Jesus as we worship and trust, and we are changed. On January 6th, 
1850, so 173 years ago yesterday, a young 15-year-old Charles Haddon Spurgeon was on his way to church service. Because of a snowstorm, he slipped into a tiny little Methodist church chapel instead, maybe a dozen people at this gathering. And he sits in the back and he tells about this kind of fumbling nobody preacher who gets up to speak actually a sermon on Isaiah 45 that we just read from the text, turn to me and be saved. And he tells his story. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. I, he said in a broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the, right, uh, the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present he knew to me to be a stranger. Then he looked at me there, and he said to me, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. That I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. And he continued, and you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey this text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Yesterday, 173 years ago, God graciously came in and he helped this young man, Charles Spurgeon, to stop looking at himself and his pride and his self-centeredness and he looked and he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus' condescension, and he saw Jesus in his exaltation, and Jesus saved him. He looked at Christ. Philippians brings us here to look to Christ, and it reminds us that, that one day we will all bow. We all will confess. One day it will come to us all, either in glad trust and worship and this hymn will be precious to us now and precious to us through eternity, or we'll be forced in unimaginable judgment because we have rejected this good news of Jesus Christ. Turn and be saved today if you have not confessed Jesus and bowed your heart to him. Let this hymn be your hymn by you placing your trust in Jesus Christ.
What will bring salvation to you and I? Looking to Jesus. It will be singing the Christ hymn by faith. What will shape us, Cross of Grace, into more and more self-emptying servants aimed at the good and joy of others? It is going to be worshiping Jesus. It is going to be us singing and feeling the good and beauty of the Christ hymn in our life. What will grow us in love and our one-mindedness and one-heartedness that we would love and serve and become more like him? It is going to be looking to Christ. It is going to be beholding Jesus, worshiping Jesus, who, though God, is the one who humbled himself even to death on a cross and was now exalted on his throne as Lord and as Christ. And we look to him. Let this be our song. Let this be our heart song. Knees bowed, hearts lifted, tongues and voices confessed. And we will know him. We will behold him and we will become like him and we will love well as God's people. Let us pray. Lord, your word tells us that you take pleasure in your people and you adorn the humble with your salvation. Lord, your word tells us you, you resist, you, you oppose the proud, but Lord, you give more grace to the humble. Lord, your word tells us the one to whom you look is to him who is humble and has a contrite heart and who trembles at your word. Lord, thank you for giving us Philippians 2, Lord, to, to guide us to a place of humility as we behold you, Jesus. You emptied yourself, taking the form of a servant, embraced the cross for our sins, not because we deserved it, not because we were beautiful and well and righteous and lovely, but because, God, you desired to set your love upon us because of your grace and your mercy in your kindness. And Jesus, you are now exalted, enthroned above so that we could, we could worship, we could love, we could thank you, and we could experience your grace ongoing. And as we do behold you, Lord, we are, we are changed. So Lord, grow in us humility like you. Grow in us a Christ-likeness that would move towards others in a way that would serve and love and build them up for their joy. And may that, that posture of humility in us, Lord, we would be eager to confess you, to obey you, to submit and follow to you and follow you, Jesus. We know this is for your glory. We know it is for our good and joy. Amen.